Good morning. I'm uh, David Goldman, uh, Professor of Medicine and Molecular Pharmacology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Director of the Cancer Center. And this morning I'll be speaking with Dr. Susan Horowitz, who is Professor and Co-Chair of the Department of Molecular Pharmacology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Associate Director of the Albert Einstein Cancer Center. Susan. Good, good morning. morning. So, um, Tell us how you first became interested in science. Well, I wasn't one of those five-year-olds that said, I'm going to be a scientist. In fact, I really didn't know what a scientist was. Um, neither my mother or father were involved in science, and I didn't have any friends who were scientists. Uh, of course, in high school, I took the regular courses, but I was at a rather small high school in a suburb of Boston that didn't have superb science courses or laboratories. So uh, I really didn't know I wanted to become a scientist till I went to college. In fact, I thought I would be a history major. And uh, I attended Bryn Mawr College where there was a requirement to take a science course. So when I was a freshman, in addition to the history courses, I took a course in biology and I loved it. And I knew right away that that was what I wanted to become, a scientist. And how did you develop an interest in cancer therapeutics? How did that, uh, tell us a little bit about your PhD work and how things went from there. Well, it's sort of an interesting story. Uh, when I was a senior in college, I went home to Boston during my winter break and I looked around for a job and I realized right away there was really nothing that I could do with my degree that I thought was interesting. Uh, I could have gotten a job at a cosmetic company putting their lipstick dyes in the eyes of rabbits, but that certainly wasn't what I wanted to do. So I came back and realized that really what I wanted to do was to do more research and I applied to graduate schools. Um, Bryn Mawr is a rather traditional place, and I was looking for something quite different. And I was very fortunate that uh, Brandeis was opening then a new graduate department of biochemistry. I applied. And one of the things that attracted me to the school was the fact that they had two women on the original faculty, which was very unusual because I was looking around at different schools, doing interviews, and there were very few women uh, who had faculty positions in science departments. So this seemed very interesting to me, and I applied, and fortunately I got in, and I was in the first class of graduate biochemists. And I studied with uh, Dr. Nathan Kaplan uh, a variety of dehydrogenases from bacterial cells, and I became quite interested in um, actually kinetics and mechanisms of action of enzymes. Well, on the personal side, I met my husband there, who was a medical student in Boston and came for us to do research during the summer. And um, then just a year, actually a month as it turned out, before I got my PhD, I gave birth to um, two wonderful twin boys. So although I had planned to go on and do a postdoc, in enzyme kinetics, I realized that at that stage of my life it was going to just be impossible. Um, my husband was an intern working every other night when interns were making $1,200 a year. 
and uh, I had to work, I needed the money, but at the same time I just didn't feel that I could work full-time uh, in a very competitive laboratory. So I went to my advisor explaining this, and I said what I want is a job where I can work Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, and then stay home the next four days. And very fortunately, he had a very good friend who was chairman of the Department of Pharmacology at Tufts Medical School, and uh, Dr. Morris Friedkin, and he said he would take me on three days a week. And I worked in Dr. Roy Kislyak's lab, and part of the deal was that I had to teach pharmacology to the dental students. Basically, I had never heard of pharmacology when I was a graduate student. So this was sort of an introduction by fire. And I could select that aspect of pharmacology that I wanted to teach. Well, anti-tumor drugs was the most biochemical. I didn't know any physiology. So I selected that aspect. And that's how I really got into uh, studying anti-tumor drugs. And while I was there at Tufts for two years, I um, worked on antifolates and some of the early derivatives looking for biological activity. So it wasn't anything that I planned, but I loved the idea that small molecules could do really great things. You have a headache, you take an aspirin, and the headache goes away. So I was enthralled and I decided that this was what I really wanted to do. How did you become involved with microtubules? Well, that's another story. Um, I was working with a number of um, anti-tumor agents. In fact, we did some of the earliest work on the camptothecans, the epipotophilotoxins. We did a lot of work on bleomycin. And um, these agents tended to work on actually DNA and inhibit their ability to replicate. And that's what I was really working on. And uh, I became involved with Taxol uh, in the 1970s uh, in a very unusual way. I received a letter from the National Cancer Institute in 1977 in the spring uh, asking me if I would study the mechanism of action of this new drug, Taxol. To be honest, I had never heard of the molecule. I knew nothing about it. Um, there was essentially one paper in the literature at this time about Taxol. It was published in 1971 in the Journal of the American Chemical Society, and it was um, written by primarily Drs. Monroe Wall and Mansu Wani and their colleagues, who had been responsible for the isolation and determination of the structure of taxol. They had done this work in the 1960s, and this paper was published in 1971. The one thing that was just amazing to me was the structure of the drug. Really an unusual structure. I like to say it's the kind of a structure that only a tree would make. No chemist would ever sit down and uh, devise this molecule. And I thought, well, this is a very unusual molecule. I looked in the literature, 
and though there were many um, articles about the taxanes, no one had any information about their biological activity. And in this original paper uh, by Monroe Wall and Wani, uh, they had already shown that the paper uh, that the drug inhibited the growth of KB cells. And actually, um, it, the drug then went to the National Cancer Institute, where they showed that it was able to inhibit the growth of some tumors in mice. So, looking at this structure and having a new graduate student, Peter Schiff, who was looking for a thesis project, uh, I thought, well, let's try it. And I wrote to the NCI and I said, please send me 10 milligrams of the drug. And I said to Peter at the same time, we'll work on this drug for one month. And if at the end of that one month, it doesn't look like it's going anyplace, uh, we'll need a new thesis project. Well, as it turned out, at the end of the one month, we knew we had a very interesting molecule. We had no idea, of course, about any clinical activity, although naturally we hoped that it would be useful uh, in patients, but we did know that we had a drug that interacted with microtubules. And that's really how I became interested in the tubule and microtubule system. Had you worked with microtubules before? No, I hadn't. Right. So we had to learn everything right. from the bottom up. What, what were the clues that, that made you think that the drug might be acting at the level of microtubules? Well, we showed in the lab when we got the drug that it was very cytotoxic. It was killing HeLa cells 10 to the, ninth, 10 to the minus ninth molar. And we thought, well, let's uh, see if by any chance the drug works in any specific phase of the cell cycle. So when we did those experiments, it was very clear that the cells were blocked in mitosis and that this was an anti-mitotic agent. Uh, of course, already in the literature were studies with colchicine and the vinca alkaloids, which were also anti-mitotic agents and interacted in, with tubulin. So this was a good guess. We didn't know for sure, but it was a good guess. And we proceeded with that guess and uh, clearly uh, became very obvious that there is a binding site for Taxol on the microtubule polymer. Over your career, there's just been an enormous uh, explosion of new technologies. How have you used some of these technologies to study the mechanism of action of Taxol and to develop Taxol analogs? Well, I think it's very important that as scientists, uh, particularly as pharmacologists, we use the latest techniques uh, and developments to try to further understand the drugs that we're working with. I think that's a very important part of being a good scientist. And although, as I told you, it was clear that Taxol had a binding site on the microtubule, and we showed that when it was in that binding site, it stabilized the microtubules so they could no longer depolymerize. And um, these microtubules then were actually like a paralyzed cytoskeleton in the cell. That's how I like to describe it. So um, one of the things that I felt was very important to determine was exactly what is the binding site 
on the microtubule for the drug. Now that wasn't so easy to do because although it was clear that the drug was interacting with the polymer, it didn't make a covalent bond. So by the normal types of experiments one does in a lab, it was very difficult to show that this was a real interaction, let alone try to figure out where this was occurring. So one of the um, methodologies that we decided to work on, and I did this with my colleague, uh, the late George Orr, is that we decided to use photo affinity analogs. In that way, um, a photo affinity group is put onto the taxol at specific sites. And when you interact the microtubules with these photo affinity analogs and use the right wavelength of light, it will make a covalent bond. And uh, what we did was we had a radio label on these um, molecules, on these analogs, so that after the experiment was done, we could then use that label to pinpoint where the drug was binding in the microtubule. This was a very long, complicated task because first we had to get the taxol analogs that had the photoaffinity group on it and the radio label. Uh, organic chemists don't like to work with radio label. I was really quite unknown at the time, and so I actually had to um, work very hard to get these three photo affinity analogs that were used by um, visiting organic chemists who had worked with natural products, some of them working with Taxol, and explaining why this was important and to get them to make these three molecules for us. And I was successful in doing that. And this was a way of our beginning to understand how the drug bound uh, to the microtubule. And we found in work of many other people, not just my laboratory, uh, that there is a binding site for taxol in the beta tubulin subunit of uh, the microtubule. And a lot of this drug was work actually was done um, also uh, by electron crystallography done by Ivan Nogolis and Ken Downey in California. You're doing some very uh, exciting work now on the pharmacophore for Taxol and, and for discodermalide, uh, which is leading to the development of some very novel new analogs. Could you describe that work and where you think it's going? Sure. Maybe go back a little bit and just say that um, when we described this mechanism of action of Taxol, uh, I thought this would be a prototype for a new class of drugs. And uh, I expected there to be many drugs that would actually interact with microtubules and stabilize them and alter their dynamic properties. As it turned out, uh, there were no new drugs of that type for 15 years. Uh, as it became clear that Taxol had um, very important activity as an anti-tumor agent in, in people, uh, many groups began to look for these kinds of drugs and natural products. And one of the areas that 
uh, people have looked in is the ocean and the sea. And the um, sponges have given us a number of molecules which, although very distinct in structure from taxol, actually have a sem similar mechanism of action. And one of these molecules is discodermalide. Uh, the um, molecules that I use in my lab have actually been synthesized by Amos Smith, who is a collaborator of mine at the University of Pennsylvania. So we were very interested in not just the binding site in the microtubule for taxol, but what happens when taxol binds in that site? What happens to the rest of the microtubule? What are the allosteric effects of the interaction of this small molecule with the polymer? And we were thinking, how could we do these experiments? And what we eventually decided to do was hydrogen deuterium exchange. And I've been very fortunate that at Einstein we have a very excellent group that I could work with are uh, Ruth Angeletti, who's a professor of biochemistry, and Hui Chao. Together we have been able to do these experiments. And we are looking, using hydrogen deuterium exchange, uh, for the purpose of trying to figure out these conformational changes that occur in the microtubule. So we've done this work with uh, Paxol and we were able to notice that there are many uh, changes in the conformation of the microtubule away from the binding site. And this is very interesting because it tells us that when the drug binds in its binding site, the rest of the molecule changes and that can make many different changes with all of the proteins that interact with microtubules. And we've actually been shown that when you have taxol on the binding site, the uh, interaction of MAPs, microtubule-associated proteins, is different when the drug is there. So we got quite a bit of information on the conformation of the microtubule and where it actually interacts in this binding site. And uh, we then wanted to do these experiments with discodermalide which binds in the same site we knew, but there's more to just binding in a site. It's how it binds in this site. So using uh, hydrogen deuterium exchange, we were able to show that yes, both of these drugs, taxol and discodermalide, bind in the same binding site, but not exactly the same way, so that they make different interactions within the binding site. And uh, seeing these results, which were um, done in my laboratory uh, by Marina Bain, uh, we realized that perhaps we could take some of the best parts of different molecules and put them together to maybe make what we call a hybrid molecule. And this work was done in collaboration with uh, Professor Amos Smith, who uh, both of us looking at the data at the same moment said, we've got to do, make some new molecules. So he's been doing that and we've been testing them. And I think we have some very exciting new molecules. And we're now looking at these actually in mice that have tumors. 
and uh, depending on our results, we hope to go forward. And of course, the dream is that these molecules would be useful in humans that have cancer. And uh, I know it's a long road from here to there, but that's the road we hope to take. You've done a lot of work with natural products. You've been a champion of natural products and identifying new natural products and understanding the mechanism of action. So we live at a time of targeted therapies with a lot of excitement of developing drugs that are targeted to the pathways and molecules that are responsible for driving cancer cells. Is there a future for national products? And beyond that, is indeed there a future for cytotoxics? That's a very interesting question, David. Um, I think that some of the new targeted molecules that are working in cancer therapy are just fantastic, very important, and this area, I think, uh, has made such a difference in the treatment of people with cancer. I mean, you think of things like lung disease or a variety of other tumors, but it's not the whole answer. We know that people are not necessarily being cured by these targeted compounds. Um, we also know that resistance develops to them. And uh, although they're certainly going to be very important in our future in terms of anti-tumor therapy, I don't believe they're the whole answer. And I think that we have a need for new cytotoxics and new uh, natural products. I mean, when we think of natural products, it isn't just the compound itself. It's the compound giving ideas to chemists to actually synthesize new compounds that they never would have dreamt of making if it weren't for these natural products. So that I see the future of cancer chemotherapy as actually combinations of natural products, cytotoxics, and these molecules which are targeting therapies. So I definitely feel that there is a role for new uh, anti-tumor agents that come of natural product origin. I mean, if you look at the history of medicine, that's where all our drugs originally came from, were natural products. And I think that uh, many times there's a swing between natural products and then the drug companies aren't interested in them. They may become interested again. We're in a time when the drug companies are not interested in natural products, but I foresee a time when they will become again of great interest. Of course, we're seeing the drug companies withdrawing in general from their own research developmental activities. We see the funding agencies also not seeing cytotoxics and natural products, the hunt for them and then the evaluation of them uh, with much enthusiasm. How do we get by this period of uh, sustaining research in these areas? How are we going to fund it? It's tough. I mean, it's tough for all research at this moment, as you well know. It isn't just natural products. Um, I think that these will come back. And I have seen in my scientific lifetime funding go up, funding go down. Now funding is down. And uh, I, I think we will see a resurgence. It's unfortunate that this has happened because we've lost a lot of young people. But um, 
this is one of the great things in the United States, the research, the medical research that has been done. And I think that it will be realized that it's a terrible mistake not to keep the pipeline full of young, eager, intelligent scientists. So what do you say to a young person who's interested in going in science and sees the angst in the community and the despair? What do you say to those young people who are thinking about science? I think we have to be very honest. And we have to tell them how tough it is. But at the same time, I think that if that is your passion, and that's really what you want to do, you must do it. Because I can't think of any more rewarding occupation than doing medical scientific research. Uh, I've been at this for a long time, as you know, and I still come to work each day eager to see what will happen in the laboratory. And I don't think that we want to tell young people that this is not an area that they should go into. And that I do believe there will be a brighter future. You are one of the earliest women in this area of science, certainly. And you had to be creative. There was no model for you. There were no role models for you, really, as you navigated having a family, when you would have the family, when you would take less time in the lab and more time with the children. So what would you say to a young woman who was interested in going in science and who was also interested in having a family? How, how should she plan her career now? Well, I think the world has changed since I was uh, a graduate student. And I think this isn't just for women, it's also for men. Because men have become much more involved in their families and need more time to uh, spend with their families. Although I agree the major uh, family work is still done by the woman, the wife. I think that uh, it can be done. I was very fortunate that I was able to work three days a week. And I have to tell you, I was very organized. I worked three days a week. I wrote two papers every year. I was working three days a week. Not great papers, but I got work done. Because when I was home, I read, I wrote, and when I came in Tuesday morning, I was ready to work for three days. But it's not easy. And there are some things you have to give up. You can't have Saturday night dinner parties and um, try to raise a family and develop a scientific career. But it's certainly doable. And I think one of the real uh, problems today is that we don't have sufficient uh, care for children which should be available to women who want to go to work. When I was young and had children, there was no such thing as daycare. One had to bring someone into the house to take care of your children. But today there are more options and universities, medical schools should work with women scientists to provide them with childcare, time off when necessary, and also for male scientists that they can participate in their children's upbringing. As you look back at the years of your career, what would you say has been most gratifying to you? What has given you the most satisfaction as you look back? Well, two things come immediately to mind. One, of course, is the satisfaction one gets from 
seeing their students, their fellows, whom one mentored, uh, do well. When I visit um, various universities to give lectures, and there's someone in the audience who's now a professor who worked in my lab as a student, I'm delighted. And um, that's the way scientists pass on to the next generation. I have former students who are professors, who work at the FDA, who work in drug companies, um, in various different fields. And usually around New Year's, I get loads of cards with pictures in them of their children and how they've grown up. And it's a wonderful feeling. I think the other wonderful feeling that I've gotten from my work is when I meet a woman who says to me, I was given Taxol and it was like a miracle. I lived to see my daughter married. I lived to see my first grandchild. That gives you a great feeling. Not because I did not discover Taxol, I didn't purify it, but we spent a lot of time working with the drug, and I think the work that we did, did push it forward. Uh, the National Cancer Institute moved forward to get this drug into patients. Um, Bristol-Myers Squibb got the crater and really worked to get this drug available in large quantities. All of these things have given me uh, a great deal of pleasure. But you believed in the drug, and you really pushed that drug forward, didn't you? Yes, and I really believe that every drug needs an advocate, someone who believes in the drug. And um, I think if you look at drugs in the past that have been successful in patients, uh, you see that there are certain people behind this who have believed in it and pushed it forward. I think that's very important. Also, there's a lot of luck involved, and I wouldn't deny that. Uh, you know, we could have done all this work on a drug in the laboratory, and then when the drug was given to patients, uh, there could have been some toxicity and the patients uh, couldn't tolerate the drug. But it turns out that Taxol uh, is certainly no cure of cancer, but it has helped people to elongate their lives, and I think that's quite important. So you're, of course, known, best known for your work with Taxol, but you've done work on other natural products, and particularly bleomycin, a lot of the earlier work. Could you de describe that? Well, to be very honest, I think some of the work that we did on bleomycin was really some of the best work that ever came out of my lab. Uh, it was started with a young uh, student, Ed Sawsville, who's actually now in charge of clinical research at the University of Maryland, and it was a collaboration with Jack Pesach. We were able to show that bleomycin, which was known to interact with DNA, we were able to show that the mechanism by which they did this was the fact that this drug actually bound a molecule of ferrous ion. And it was the bleomycin ferrous ion complex that was kinetically, in the presence of oxygen, able to degrade the DNA. Now, bleomycin is a natural product from bacteria, streptomyces, 
And it too is a fascinating molecule because part of that molecule binds the ferrous ion, like a heme, and another part of that molecule actually intercalates into DNA. Well, bleomycin was isolated and studied extensively in Japan. It was Professor Umazawa who was really responsible for this drug. And I remember very clearly, I was quite young at the time, I was invited to talk at a meeting in Hawaii, which was going to be an American-Japanese meeting on bleomycin. It was in Hawaii because they were translating capabilities there between England, I mean between English and Japanese. And when I actually stood up and gave my talk and talked about the interaction of the iron and bleomycin, Professor Umazawa jumped up and said, that's impossible. We've been working with bleomycin all these years. There's no iron involved. It must just be in the water in the Bronx because I had explained that it was adventitious iron, but it turned out there was adventitious iron in the water in Japan also. And that, yes, the degradation of DNA was the res uh, what was responsible for that was this bleomycin iron complex in the presence of oxygen. So that was very, uh, a lot of fun. And uh, actually I got a, a, um, a jersey a tea that said on it, the Iron Woman from the people at the meeting. Um, has, have there been any people, uh, role models for you, or mentors for you, or friends that have really made a difference in terms of your career moving forward? Oh, of course. I mean, I was very fortunate to work with uh, Nathan O. Kaplan at Brandeis. He had come from um, a, a, a university where they wouldn't even allow women to be graduate students, if you can imagine this. And uh, I think I got a lot of very good advice from him. Will that university go unnamed? Yes, I didn't name it. Um, and I got very good advice from him. And as I mentioned to you, there were two women on the faculty he had brought two women on the very starting faculty, Mary Ellen Jones and uh, Helen Van Vanakis. I remember them very much. And both of them were terrific mentors. He, they were both married with children and uh, had very normal, what I considered a normal life, like I wanted to have, and yet they were fabulous scientists. So yes, that was very important. Um, and there weren't that many places then that had women on the faculty. And then I was very fortunate. I spent two years as a part-time scientist at Tufts Medical School. I then actually spent two years as a part-time uh, scientist at Emory Medical School when my husband was uh, at the CDC. And then I came to Einstein, where I again spent a couple of years as a part-time uh, scientist with um, Arthur Grohman, who was in Department of Medicine when I first came to work with him and then he moved to pharmacology and that's how I got into the pharmacology department. Uh, my husband and I planned to stay maybe two or three years at Einstein 
but we both were really very involved in our work and it was going well and we were both uh, offered faculty positions. Uh, the chairman of the pharmacology department at Albert Einstein was um, uh, Dr. Alfred Gilman, a very famous pharmacologist, and uh, he uh, offered me a position as an instructor in the department of, well, it was then Department of Pharmacology. And uh, I think that he expected me to remain an instructor for the rest of my life. Um, I think I was the first woman he had on a faculty. But he changed as I did more work, more teaching, more research, and um, actually, I think, appreciated what I was able to do. And then um, when my children started in the first grade, I realized that it was time to make a decision. And I was working in Arthur Grohman's lab at the time, and he really encouraged me to uh, come back full time. At that time, I think I was making $4,500 a year working three days a week, which didn't even pay for my babysitter. So I decided to give it a try, and I came back and worked as a full-time assistant professor. Thank you. You're so welcome. I enjoyed talking to you.